All right, well, welcome everybody today. It is always a great day when you can do this and turn on the fan in Alaska. Yes, I love it. Um, and uh, it's been beautiful this weekend and, and uh, just uh, been an amazing time. And, and today, as, as we celebrate Memorial Day uh, weekend and tomorrow Memorial Day and, and, and the meaning of that, of those who gave their life um, for our country and, and served our country and gave their lives, it's a time for us to, to reflect and to be grateful for all of those who have given the, uh, the ultimate gift, have paid the ultimate price for us. And, and so that, that is, as we come in uh, to, to Memorial Day weekend, that's, that's the true meaning of it. It has a, a, a great history going back to post-Civil War as um, it was celebrated and, and they would begin to go and, and decorate graves. Maybe um, I grew up with it being called Decoration Day where you know families would go to the cemeteries and decorate the graves. And, and so that is uh, where its, its roots are. It eventually became a, a national holiday and, and uh, moved to be called Memorial Day the, the last Monday. I think it's the last Monday of the month. But, uh, but anyway, as, as we celebrate that, that's, that's what this weekend is about on our, our holiday calendar. It's a day to remember and, and to celebrate the memory of those who have given their lives so that we can have the country that we have. Um, so this morning, we're going to be in Revelation uh, chapter 20. And, and so as, as we come into that, um, just, just to begin, there, there are uh, basically three different schools of thought on this passage. We'll get into that a little bit. Uh, one of the things that I've done as, as we've come through here, I've tried my best to not, not get out into the weeds and, and all the different um, interpretives and, and, and try to make this about how do I figure out, you know, when's Jesus coming? Or what is, you know, what is the scheme or what, what is the meaning of this or that or, or whatever, but really come into to what I believe is, is the very bottom line in this book. And the bottom line is, is that God is sovereign. He is over all things. He is on the throne today. He has always been on the throne. He will never leave the throne. That he has a plan and a purpose for his church. He has a plan and a purpose for his people as he has throughout history. He has a plan and a purpose how it will all unravel and, and be wrapped up in the end. And as we look at this book, I, I believe that it was very much given to Christians in a time of intense persecution at the very beginning of the church, of the church age, to comfort them, to encourage them, and to drive them forward as they moved to accomplish the plans and purposes of God. So as, as we come in to that, the first thing I would say in verses one through three is that Satan's on a leash. He is on a leash. He, um, he may be a roaring lion seeking he, whom he may devour, but I'm telling you, when it comes to Jesus, he's a kitty cat on a leash. He is not in control. He is not in power over us, over you, over the church, or over this world. God is on the throne. And sometimes we give Satan way too much benefit of, of uh, believing that he has powers that he does not have, because as we come into this passage, we're going to see he is most definitely on a leash. He can only do what God allows him to do. So that, that would be the first thing. He's on a leash in the first three verses. Um, and, and as we come in, it says, he says, John writes, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So as we come in, this is the most debated, debated and most divisive passage in the entire book. So as I came into this, I was, I was talking to Don Combs beforehand. I said, man, I've spent more time on this one than I've spent on any of them. I've read more. I've, I've uh, come in with it, and, and um, it, it is not 
an easy passage to, to break down. There are three different schools of thought on it. We'll get to that in a minute. And that's one thing I really haven't tried to do is go, hey, there's this one, this one, this one, and, and come in because really I think that there's a meaning to all of it and an application, and that's really where I want us to go. But regardless of where you sit in the debate, regardless of, of where you come down in this, here's, here's some things to remember. We all agree that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, right? He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he is on the throne. That is a foundational truth of the Christian faith. It's, it's not up for grabs. He is currently and eternally reigning on the throne. He's always been there. He always will be. Never left it. He is on the throne. His, the church is his bride. We are the bride of Christ, the church, the people of God are his bride, and they will never be defeated. Never. The church will never be defeated. No matter what is thrown at her, she will always stand firm and conquer. That's, that's the story. And if you come back and you go back to the first century AD, that's what you see. This little bitty group of people who are heavily persecuted, they're imprisoned, they're tortured, they're... They're marginalized for their faith. They are try, uh, the, the Roman Empire has done everything they can to stamp this out. They not only persevered, they overcame. And they not only overcame, but within three centuries, they would be the majority faith group in the world. So it, it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing story to look like. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's a promise of God. The church will never be defeated. Nothing will come up against her and defeat her. We're not victims. We're not victims. The church is not a victim. Christians are not victims. You are never a victim. Never. We should never we should never project that we are victims of a system, that we are victims of a government, that we are victims of somebody persecuting us. We are not victims. We are victors. Victors. That is who the church is. That is who we are. That is what God has called us to. That is who Jesus is. We are the people of Jesus, and Jesus has called us into his kingdom as victors, as winners, as the people who will stand firm throughout all of eternity. This is where this book is coming when it's coming in. It's talking to people. They're suffering real life persecution. Real life persecution. And they are victors. Romans 8, 31 and through 39, the apostle Paul in this day, in this time, when it's all going down, this is what he writes. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We agree on all these things. These are foundational things to our faith. Jesus, God in the flesh, came. He died for us on the cross. He rose again. Life comes only through him. Hope is only found in him. He is the only way into eternal um, salvation with God and, and to enter into heaven. These are foundational beliefs that everybody in the room that is a follower of Jesus holds. Those are foundational issues. So let's come back to Revelation 21 through 3. 
Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might deceive the na- not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended and that he must be released for a little while. So as we come into this, we begin to see some interesting words. He has a key to a bottomless pit. There is a great chain. There's a dragon. There's a serpent. There's the devil who is Satan. And and there is some, some symbolic language that's coming all down through here. And by the way, we've seen this all throughout the book, right? As we've come through the book of Revelation, we have seen some, some pictures that you look at and you go, this is amazing. What does it mean? What does it mean? What's the meaning of the picture? What is the meaning of the great chain? Satan is bound. He is not free to roam. What is the meaning of the bottomless pit? What is the key? Um, and, and so forth. And whatever conclusion you come to, as we come down to the thousand years, um, those are unchangeable truths that we refuse to let go. The things that we've talked to about up to this point, we're victors. Um, salvations in Christ. These are unchangeable. These are truths that don't. So wherever you land on this thousand thing, um, it, it, it really doesn't make a big difference when it comes down to what we're talking about is what we hold as people of faith. So what are the views on the thousand years or the millennium as, as it's typically called? What are the views on this thing called the thousand years? He's bound for a thousand years years. Um, there, there are three schools of thought, really kind of breaks into four. Um, there's, there's pre, there's two different schools in the pre, there's post, and there's amillennialism. So three different looks at millennialism, premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism, which um, really is probably better to be called inaugurated millennialism, saying that it's moving. And if I say millennialism anymore, I'm not going to be able to talk. Um, but uh, these are three views of, of thought. And they are represented by conservative Bible scholars all across the board. Look, you you want to come in? A who's who of conservative, historically conservative Bible scholars have been in each of these three viewpoints. Um, You could go in and you could go to Papias who sat at the feet of the Apostle John. He would come in the historical uh, model of it, which would say that historically these things have been fulfilled that he saw those in his day, he would say in, in the first century, second century AD, he would say the things that he saw in Revelation, the symbols and everything, he'd say, you know what? I've seen this stuff happen. I've seen it lived out. And I know that it will happen over and over and over again. So he would see it as, as realized and also as future. Um, there would, um, and, and then uh, and, and there are modern scholars that hold to this as well. So it's been held for, for uh, basically forever. Um, there are those who, uh, who hold to um, um, <clears throat> uh, the, the dispensational view. It's probably the most popular today. And it, that, that view began in the early 1800s with the Plymouth Brethren. So it's not been around for a long time. Um, as a matter of fact, it's been around the least of all four but, um, but, but it holds that uh, this thousand years will be a literal thing. It's, it's the Left Behind series. If you watch the movies, that's it. People that would, um, it began with a guy named J.N. Darby about 1820 with the Plymouth Brethren. It was popularized really greatly with the Schofield Reference Bible. So if you have a Schofield Reference Bible, all the notes in there would go back to that viewpoint. Now, the thing you need to remember, your study Bible, the notes in your study Bible are not inspired by God. They're written by men. The text, the text is the word of God written by God. So, so there's where you come in, which by the way, there are many different study Bibles that hold different views and, and those will come through in that. Um, so, so there are people who hold to that. Um, and, and then there's the, uh, the um, post-millennial school of thought. Um, the post-millennial school of thought would be like R.C. Sproul, uh, postmillennialism says that that um, the millennium is going to precede the coming of Christ, 
and things are just going to get better and better and better and better and better and Jesus will come. That is not held by many people today. World War I and World War II pretty well tanked it. People said, you know what? We're not getting better and better. We're getting worse and worse. And the dispensational view is the flip of that. It says everything's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse, and then Jesus is going to come. Then there's going to be this thousand-year reign. Um, so, so those would, would come in with those, and I haven't confused you guys all yet, have I? If you are, don't feel bad, because I sit here, it, it still swims around in my brain. I've said this for years. Um, and then there's the, the amillennialism, or ah um, means that, that the millennium, the thousand years, is not a literal thousand years. And, and what, what they would say, if you come into this viewpoint, we say, you know what? We've seen numbers used symbolically throughout this book. Why are we changing to a literal at the end? Why are we taking a thousand as being a symbolic number as we've come through like 144,000? We don't believe that heaven's limited to 144,000, 12 times 12 times 1,000. We believe that that number means myriads of people or multitudes of people or an uncountable number of people worshiping around the throne of God. So you would come in there and say, you know what, just as we have taken the chain, the bottomless pit, the key to be all symbols of something, to, to uh, have a meaning, we're going to take this thousand to go right along with that. We're not going to change horses at the end of the book, but we're going to stay through there. So there are people who believe that the Bible is true. The Bible is inspired by God. They believe all of the things that we talked about when we began here, that, that um, we are the church, that Jesus has founded us, that he died, he purchased us with his blood. All of those things, everything that you would believe about evangelism and everything else, and, and they are in different camps on this. Um, you would have the, the people that would hold to that last view. The amillennial view would be um, Augustine of Hippo, going back to the uh, 4th century AD. Um, you would have people like Martin Luther, John Calvin. Um, <clears throat> you would have many modern scholars today who hold that as well. So these are all very common viewpoints. Um, Herschel Hobbes, if you've grown up in Southern Baptist life, Herschel Hobbes was an amillennialist. So you, you see this, and they, and they take this, and they say, you know what, these, these numbers are symbols that have meanings. So um, if, if we come in, we come through the book, there's several threes, sevens, tens, twelves, thousands. The book's full of symbols. It, it doesn't make it all false. It, it just aligns with a lot of biblical literature. As you come through biblical literature, you see a lot of symbols as you come through there. You see Israel, the church. As, as God's wife. Are we literally the wife of God? Like I am the husband of Trish? No. It's a metaphor. It's a picture of what God intends us to have. It, it, it tells us that marriage is a symbol of our union with God. It is sacred. It is permanent. It is something that is not to be violated or broken. It gives us this great picture to see and to come in and, and to look at it. Um, we see Israel being called a harlot, saying that she whored after other gods. Does that mean that she was literally um, a prostitute on the street corner? No. It says that spiritually she was giving herself to someone else and selling out to them. And, and these are all words that capture our imagination and they capture our heart. And, and God has designed this in his word to draw us into the story so that we can be not only educated, but caught up in it so that we can be caught up in the story of God and, and experience it and have feeling and emotion that goes along with it in the ways that he has designed us. So as we come into that, what, what, I've gone through all that. Now you're saying, but, but what is the thousand years? What is the thousand years? That's the thousand dollar question or the million dollar question. You know, did, did your mother ever tell you, if I've told you once, I have told you thousand times, James Scott Kaufman, do not do that. Did, did your mama ever tell you that with your name in there? No. Oh, y'all were all perfect, right? I was not. 
I'm certain that my brother heard it more than I did, but, but he would probably dispute that fact. Um, and uh, anyway, a thousand. I think that the thousand represents an extended period of time, an undefined period of time when you come into literal years, because it consistently lines up with the way we've been reading the book. It consistently lines up with the way symbols have been used throughout this book. I don't think it's going to change right at the end. I could be wrong, but I don't believe that. I believe that it consistently lines up with that. And I also believe that this section of the book, chapter 20, parallels chapter 12. If you come into chapter 12 and and chapter 20, we don't have time to go through all of it. We could spend weeks on this. But but you can see the parallels where one lays over the other. Um, You can can see different things happening there. Um, I believe that this section connects with the previous three chapters, 17, 18, and 19, connect with chapter 20, not just numerically, but topically and, and the events that are going on. They line up with one another. Or if you go back to as we went through the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls of plague, those three things all lay over top of one another, that they are concurrent things that are happening, that, that we see these things as, as the, the end unfolds, that we see it from the viewpoint of the church, from the viewpoint of those who don't know Christ, from the viewpoint of heaven, and, and they give us different looks. Um, so as we come in, I, I believe that this connects, and, and it's synonymous, chapter 20, the battle that we see in chapter 20 is synonymous with the battle that we see in chapter 19 because they line up. They, they are almost word for word exactly the same, the way that it goes down and happens. So these thousand years, either they either precede the second coming, they follow it, or they began at the resurrection. That, those are the three choices that we have. We have to look at it. The, the thousand years, they either um, are, are in one of those three categories. So they're either before the second coming, after the second coming, or they began with the advent of Christ. They began with the coming of Christ. They're with the life of Christ. And so as we come in with that, as you look in it, I believe that as you look at the age of the church, and we look at this, that we are in this period of time. We've been in this period of time for 2,000 years. When when, um, you go through the New Testament, it speaks of the end times, or that the time is near, or prepare, or whatever. I believe that that's what Jesus is saying. You are in it. This is the age of the church, and this is the culmination of God's plan. And as you look at the scriptures, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, you're going to begin to see Jesus unfolding in the pages of scripture. Everything in the Bible points towards him. Everything in the Bible um, is, is progressively giving us this view of where God is taking us. And it moves us to the cross. It culminates at the cross. And it wraps up at the second coming of Christ that he is going to return. So I, I believe that it all began with Jesus. And Satan, defeated, Satan was defeated by Christ. When Jesus came, he was defeated. If you go back to chapter 12, you see the woman the beast, and the child. And you see that there's this cosmic battle that goes on, and the beast is defeated. And at that point, that would we talked about that. You can go back and look at it. But basically, that, that the, uh, the, um, <clears throat> the people represented there would be the, uh, the, the people of God as they come in, that the we are the people of God, that we are there, and that the woman, <clears throat> that's, that's who she would represent, the people of God. The child would be the church. That um, would not be the church. The child would be Christ, and obviously the beast would be Satan coming to chase him. So as, as we come in, in Revelation 10, uh, 12, 9 and 10, and it says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, 
the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So at that, Satan was bound. He was thrown down, cast out of heaven, and he is put on a leash in chapter 12. We see that as we come in here, we're looking at what what does that mean for us? It, It means that Satan may deceive us, but he'll never destroy us. He cannot destroy us. He may deceive the church. He may take us down the garden path. He may introduce heresy into our hearts. He he will, uh, we may be tempted, but we will never be destroyed. That's what the assurance of persevering faith holds. It means that we cannot be snatched from Jesus' hand because Jesus holds us. He holds us in his hand. He says, no one can snatch them out of our hands. So our part in this our part in this whole thing, in, in this time, and, and regardless of where you sit on all this, our part is to be faithful to Christ. Our part is to be faithful to be in his word. Our part is to be faithful in serving him. Our part is to be faithful in proclaiming Jesus to the people around us. Our part is to live out our faith for other people to see so that our world can see it and be drawn to it. That's who we are. That's what we are. That's what Christ has called us to. And and it goes back to what we looked at earlier in, in chapter 19. It says, it was granted to her to clothe herself with linen, fine and pure. And in other words, Jesus gave us this salvation. It was granted to us. He clothed us with linen. He made us pure. None of us made ourselves good enough for God. He did it for us. And it also says that the bride has made herself pure. So on one hand, it's all the work of God. On the other hand, we are doing everything we can on our part to do the same thing. It says that I am saved by grace and grace alone. And that as I have been saved by grace, I have a heartfelt desire to be more and more and more like Jesus, that I want to grow in my faith. That's why we emphasize so much being in the word of God, spending time reading the word of God, spending time in prayer, spending time living out our faith, because faith is not something that's cognitive in our brain. It's something that burns in our heart and changes us and shapes us and molds who we are. We're justified by faith in Jesus and we grow in our faith as we do the works of righteousness. It's sanctification. We have been justified by Christ through his bloodshed on the cross. We are growing in our faith. That's the process of sanctification as he works in us, as the Holy Spirit shapes and molds us. And one day when Jesus returns or when we die and go to heaven to be with him, we will be glorified and we will be fully known, and we will know him fully. That's the process. Salvation is a process. Three things take place in that. We are justified, we are sanctified, and we are glorified as we come in with it as you look at the theological side of it. So the result of all of this will be that we will make disciples and Satan cannot stop us. Regardless of where you sit in all of it, on all of this whole thing about the thousand years, and and you can disagree with me vehemently. I mean, I'm fine with that. doesn't bother me. There are people way smarter than me that disagree with me. And there are people way smarter than me that that see it the same way I see it. Um, and, And by the way, I don't see it clearly in any of those things. I mean, I I see bits and pieces of all of it. It's almost like, you know, you're kind of quilting it together and making it happen and and coming in. And and, um, actually, you can see some people who write on this, they they piece things together because you can't neatly put God into this little box. It just won't happen. But if we come in and see this, we see that the gospel is going to be proclaimed to the nations. And as we come in, there are things to learn from all, all, all three of these positions. There are things that we can learn from the premillennialist. Um, there, there, there's an urgency. There's an urgency. From the postmillennialist, 
They are, they are trusting in God and they are trusting that the gospel is effective and it will bring about the change that G, what Jesus has done will show itself for, um, for the person who is looking in it. They're living it out in, in the amillennial. They're living it out and seeing it and, and going and taking this to the world. So whatever it is, these, these things are all good and they shape us and they mold us and change us. And that's who we are. That's what we've got to be. That's what we've got to be as the people of God. We have got to be people who know that Satan is on a leash. And rather than fight and bicker with one another, we have to be shoulder to shoulder on the word of God, facing the message of God and taking it to the world. That's who we are. So just a little quick Side, side road. Maybe you've read about the Southern Baptist Convention in the news this week. It breaks my heart, and it does not surprise me. I'm not surprised. And I'll tell you why I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised because the way this thing went down, it was about power, position, and prestige. Now, that's just all I can say about it. And I've seen it. I've seen it play out. I've seen it played out um, in, in various ways. But, but as you look at it, if you're wondering, going, what's he talking about? It, it was for years, there were people who reported being abused to the, the convention offices. And the convention offices always shirked responsibility and said, we, we can't do anything. That's wrong. Wrong. And um, four years ago, I went to the first time I ever went to a Southern Baptist convention. Look, I don't do politics. I don't do convention politics. I don't like it. Um, it's not my gig. But we went, and I'm telling you, the reason I went is to vote for the guy that, I, that, that we did that was hands down against what was going on and said, we will we will root this out and we will not tolerate abuse, sexual abuse in our convention. We will not allow churches that turn a blind eye to it to be a part of it. We will kick them out. We will, we will do this. And, and so we did. And, and, and that began to roll. And last year, stuff came up convention-wise. And I rarely ever, ever, if you want to talk about it, you want to ask questions, feel free to call me, talk to me, whatever. Um, be happy to do that. Um, but I think it's important. I think it's important that we understand that just because Satan's on a leash doesn't mean that he's not wreaking havoc. And, and he is working on people. And we need to be very, very cautious that the one that we're most interested in, Jesus, not ourselves, that we see things the way that Jesus sees them, that we see human beings as created in the image of God to reflect the glory of God, and that we treat them respectfully as such, and that we always do the right thing regardless of the cost, regardless of the cost. Regardless of the cost of our convention, we have to do the right thing. And if we don't, I don't want to be a part of it. And, and that's where I was in 2018, However this goes down, whatever we do with some of the people who have been perpetrating this and how we treat them, I don't care how famous they are or whatever else, they will be removed. And if they are not removed and we don't do the right thing, I won't be a part of this. I will not be a part of it. If the church says they will, I'll leave. But I won't be a part of it. I will not be a part of something that is not according to the word of God. So we came down, and, and there, there's some things that happened there. There was a seminary president removed um, and so forth. Paige Patterson, he was removed and taken out, and I was all for that. So that's where it all went. And so you go, man, this, is, this has gotten really weird today. We're talking about millenniums and guidepost reports and all kinds of stuff. Well, I don't normally do that, but, uh, but Satan's on a leash. Folks, he's on a leash, but he's alive and well. He is alive and well, and, and while he's on that leash, he is poking and prodding all of his minions to 
raise all kinds of problems with us. The second thing is the saints reign with Jesus. Satan's on a leash. He is on a leash. And I believe that right now he is on a leash. And that is this time of righteousness, that the church, we have the ability to make changes and impact. That's why if you come back, these little, this little group of people who were following Jesus in the first century, that's why they were able to change the world because Satan was not allowed to defeat them. He was held back. He could, he could curse them. He could influence them. He could tempt them, but he could not destroy them. <clears throat> in verses four through six, the saints reign with Jesus. It says, then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over the second death, over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So the saints raise with Jesus. <clears throat> There's a resurrection of the saints who have died. Um, those who die in Christ are spiritually alive in heaven with Jesus, and they reign with him. When he comes in, he's saying that there will be this resurrection. These are the people who die in Christ, and they are currently reigning with God in heaven. He says, I saw the souls of those who'd been martyred. They, they were beheaded, you know, whatever it might be for the testimony of Christ, for the word of God. Those who had refused to worship the beast, to take the mark of the beast. Those who refused to bow down to the culture of the day, whatever that culture might be. The culture of America, the culture of Rome, the culture of, of you name it, you come in there. So whatever it was, these are the people there. It says they came to life with Christ for a thousand years. That's the first resurrection. Um, it says the rest of the dead did not come alive until the thousand years were over. So until this period of the millennium's over, those who have died with the mark of the beast, they don't come back to life. They will come back for the final judgment. <clears throat> Those who follow the beast, they face a different resurrection that will ultimately lead to an eternal and spiritual separation from Jesus. That'll be the last part of this chapter, verses 11 through 15, I believe it is. And there's no way we'll get there. Um, <clears throat> so um, anyway... This uh, second death only applies to those who don't follow Christ. It's what will be experienced by those with the mark of the beast. And <clears throat> this is where everybody at the, at the last 11 through 15, everybody will face judgment. All of the dead will be brought to life and they will, um, rent, they will face the judgment seat of Christ. So the comfort we find here in Christ is that death has no power over us. When we die, we're alive with him. When, when, some, when our loved ones die here, when we have a funeral and, and there's a casket laying right here, you know what we say? They're not here. They're in the presence of God. They took their last breath and Jesus grabbed them by the hand and ushered them into the very presence of God, into that place that he has prepared for them into that place that as the bride, the bridegroom has come and brought her into the place of, of preparation, the place that, that is there into the, the marriage ceremony of the bride and the church. And, and they have been brought into there and they are reigning with Jesus. They are currently reigning with Christ in heaven. That is where we come in, in in the Christian life. Heaven's not sitting on a cloud. It's not sitting on a lake where you catch a fish with every cast. It's, it's not where everything you desire in life you get. That's not what it is. Heaven is a place where we fully know God and we fully understand and we are in his presence and we are reigning over the entire universe with him. We are co-heirs with Christ. These are truths of the word of God. And, and that is where we are. We are reigning with Christ. This is the picture here. And <clears throat> the comfort is, is that in Christ, death has no power over us because we are brought to life in him. And it's a passage from living here 
in Christ to reigning with him eternally. We anxiously await for him. In Philippians 3, 17 through 21, Paul puts it this way. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to him even to subject all things to himself. That's the promise of God. In 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, it says, the saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. For if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. It's the picture that we're seeing in Revelation. We either have the seal of God or the mark of the beast. There's no in-between. So if the millennium began with Jesus, then we can see this amazing hope that is far greater than this world that we're living in currently. It's a promise from God that we will reign with Christ, that we are priests serving God, that we are in the kingdom of God. We are a part of it. We are co-heirs with him. It's a hope that cannot be taken away from us. Or as 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, we are ministering before God. We are reigning together with him. Uh, Revelation 1, 4 through 8, as we began the book, it said, John said to the, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and who has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. You see, the the rest of the dead, these are the people who will be resurrected for the final judgment. They're the ones who did not follow Jesus. They refused to follow Jesus. During this time, everybody has this opportunity. There is this time of 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 opportunity. Satan is bound. He is not free. He cannot fully blind people to the gospel. They can see it. They can respond to it. They have this opportunity. When when Jesus comes back, that's not going to be the case. It's over. It's lights out. Satan will be released. And when he releases, when he is released, he will fully blind people to any opportunity to know. So those people will be subject to eternal punishment at the final judgment. It says they, um, that's, that's where it will be. So then we come in and, and we've got Satan's on a leash. The saints will reign with Jesus. And then Satan and all of his followers are sent into the abyss. That's, that's where we're coming up at the end. Got to get a drink of water here. So Satan and all of his followers are cast into the abyss in verses 7 through 10. It says, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the sea, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So as we come in and, and we look at all of it, we, we're looking at the, the age of the church. We're in the age of the church, and pretty much everybody would agree on that. That's not a big deal. Um, but but <clears throat> as, as we come in and say that this millennium is this time, this time 
of, of the opportunity for us to share the gospel that Satan is, is prevented from totally blinding people to the truth of the word of God, but then they can be drawn to him. At the conclusion of this age, Satan will be unbound, unchanged for a short period of time. And those who have had the opportunity to respond to the gospel rather and have chosen not to respond to the gospel, at this time what we see is they flock to the beast. That's where they go. They go to the one that they've followed forever and and they come to him and and they are deceived by Satan to make war on the lamb. They, They come up, he says, they come up to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. They're calling all up, going to Gog and Magog. It goes back to Ezekiel 38 39. And they're coming in for this great day of the Lord, this great cosmic battle. And Satan deceives the, the people who do not follow Christ or, or who, who, do, who um, <clears throat> throughout the history have not come to follow God. And they're, they are deceived to make war on the Lamb. So this is the same battle that we see in chapter 19. If you flip back you know, the page um, and Jesus conquers it before it ever starts, it says he defeated them with the sword of his mouth. He defeats them. So the battle is won by, by the Lamb before a shot's ever fired. He consumes them. Um, John 16, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation." But take heart, I have overcome the world. In 1 John 5, 4, every, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And in other words, Satan is defeated. That's the promise that we have here. They come up from all over, from all ends of the world. They circle the people of God. And, and the devil who has seen them, he is then cast down into the lake of fire, into the burning pit of sulfur, for eternity to be punished for what he has done. So we are living in victory. Satan is defeated. Sin and death have been defeated. They were defeated at the cross. We are in this period of time waiting for the final victory. Or if you want to come in with it being Memorial Day, what a great illustration would be D-Day and V-Day. The battle was won on D-Day. On D-Day, it was, a, it was a foregone conclusion that the Allied forces would win. It was just a matter of going in and finally defeating out every last pocket of resistance. And on V-Day, victory was declared. Today, that's where we are. The victory is won. We are victors. We are victors. We are not victims. We are the people of God. We have been bought with the blood of Christ. We have a hope and we have a future. And by the way, no matter how you see and try to break down this little book at the end of the Bible, here's the thing to remember. One day we're going to stand before God and I promise you nobody's going to say, I had it right, you were wrong. You know, that side of us is going to be gone because we are going to be seeing Jesus face to face and we are going to be overcome. We are going to be overcome and overwhelmed with the glory of God. And we're going to be on our faces before him, worshiping him for what he did for us because we are going to see holiness for what holiness is. And in that moment, we will see sin truly for what sin was, what it did. And that's the hope. That's the hope. You see, the book of Revelation, it's a book of hope. It's, it's not a roadmap to figure out the future. Instead, it's a guideline on how to live out your life today. It's, a, it's, it's to drive us to a closer understanding of Jesus and who he is and the hope that he offers to us. It is something that that points to the seriousness of sin and the need for redemption. It's something that, that isn't given to scare us to death, but instead to make us soberly recognize sin and the effects that it has on us and the people around us. And maybe you're here today and you go, you know what? I, this scares me to death. 
And, and, and I don't even, I mean, how do you even know that? How can you even know that, that you are belonging to the lamb or belonging to the bee? I mean, how, how, what does it look like? It's very, very simple. It comes back to this picture. We talked about it in the very beginning. We talked about the dragon, the woman, and the child. It's the child is Satan. Um, oh, the child is Jesus. There are too many different symbols going on. The child is Jesus. Take that off the live stream, people. Um, <laughs> be my, that'll be my moment of going viral. Um, <clears throat> the child is Jesus. And the child has come to redeem you. You can't do it yourself. God has provided redemption. And it comes when we come to the child, when we come to Christ, when we come to Christ who was crucified for us, when we come to Christ who chose to bear our sins on the cross, when we come to Christ and we turn from living life on our terms to saying, you know what, God? I'm going to live it however you have prescribed. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow his word. And everything I see in my life, as I see it, that doesn't align with the word of God, I'm going to turn from it and I'm going to turn to you, regardless of the cost, because I belong to you. That's what's called repentance. It says that I'm no longer living on my terms. I'm living on the terms of God. I'm going to follow him. So if, if that's where you are today and you wonder, how do I become a child of the Lamb? That's how you do it. You turn to Jesus. You repent. You, you return from living life the way that you think is best, from what you think works, from what you think is, is right, to saying, I'm going to trust God and do what God says regardless of what I think about it, regardless of how I see it. And I'm going to trust him to give me the best because I know that he has won the battle. That's trusting Jesus. That's believing in Jesus. That's following Jesus. That's where it comes down. It's called, I'm going to become a follower of Christ. So if you want to do that today, you can do it. You, you verbalize that to God in, in prayer. And, and you pray to him, thanking him for coming, thanking Jesus for dying for you, thanking him for what he offers to you saying that you're receiving it. I want that gift, and I will follow you. I will make you the master of my life, the boss, the, the Lord, the king, and trust you and, and follow you as best as I can throughout the rest of my life. That's what it means to follow Jesus. For the rest of us, as we come in, we, we need to be encouraged. We need to be encouraged today, and we also need to be prodded. We need to be prodded to spend more time in the Word of God, to spend more time seeking after Him, and to be faithful in the battle that He has placed us in because He has given us an opportunity to change the world. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning thanking and praising you for Jesus, for who He is, for the hope that we have in Him. Father, thanking you that, um, that you are too complex for us to just be able to neatly put in little bitty boxes and say, this is exactly how everything is. But instead, to know that you're beyond, beyond anything we could ask or imagine, that you have a mind and a thought that are way higher than ours, Father, that, that you are God and we're not. And Father, that we long to see you face to face. We long to be with you. We long to experience the hope that you've given to us future. And Father, we trust you today as we lean into it. And Father, we pray now that you would draw us close to you. In Jesus' name, amen.